It is definitely a, a real pleasure and honor to, to see each of you here. Um, before I begin, uh, is there anyone here who might uh, have left their Bible at home who might need a Bible? We have some Bibles we can hand out. You can follow along. It's not exactly the same version, but if you uh, just need one, raise your hand and um, Chad will get one to you. Thinking about this this weekend, if you just think over the last day or so, can you think of any examples of projects or tasks that you may be putting off? Projects or tasks that you don't want to do? Maybe even more long-term, maybe some lifestyle dietary changes, lifestyle fitness changes. Perhaps there's already a school assignment that you're putting off. At my age, honestly, I do not say this to garner sympathy, there are things that I've forgotten that I know I need to do, and they're just kind of in the back of my head. I know I'm not done with the list. The, the list is just get, getting shorter because I forget that I have something that I need to do. Um, that really blesses my wife when I do that. But um, with these things that we put off, don't the distractions or the objections or the excuses come rather easily? For example... Um, the shed in my backyard, it is, it, is, it is in disrepair. I actually talked to Dan Isaacson about this maybe two years ago. The, the door needs to be replaced, and now the floor too. But um, it's just something I've put off. It, it's not going to fall on the rest of the house, so it's not perhaps urgent, but there are just other things that come up. And um, I genuinely just forgot about it until just now. But there are other things that come up, things that when I see it through the window, I, I'm like... Um, I, I need to do this th- thing over here. Or I've worked hard this week. I don't want to work on that this week. Or the sun is out. Or the sun's not out. You know, whatever it is that keeps me from doing that, it's an excuse. And these come easy to us, these things in our head. We call it rationalizing. They seem very logical. They seem very commendable, justified. And they seem very, very, very logical. And... um even if other people maybe don't see that. As we move into Exodus chapter 4, and if you turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4, or as I read this week, if you swipe to Exodus chapter 4, if you use an electronic Bible, if you're using one of our handout Bibles, it's page 55, page 55. We are in the middle of a conversation that Moses is having with God. Moses has been making some respectful perhaps even understandable objections to God. Because he heard God say, Come, I will send you, Moses, to Pharaoh. I will send you that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses' first objection in chapter 3, two weeks ago, um, we covered this. Moses' first objection was, Who am I to carry this message for you? This, This seems like a very humble, reasonable thing. Who am I to carry this message for you? And God's answer didn't really answer that question, who am I? God's answer was, I will be with you. He didn't say, oh, Moses, you're really important. He said, no, when you say, who am I? God says, I will be with you. The takeaway from that is, Moses, you've been called, and who you are isn't the main point. God's saying, I am the main point of this story. I am the main point of this task that I've called you to do. I am the main point of the, the, uh, the calling that I've given to you. The second objection that Moses gave to God, 
followed that. And it also says, who shall I say has sent me? When I go talk to the children of Israel, when I talk to the people back in Egypt, who shall I say has sent me? What is your name? By whose authority do I speak? And God answered with this wonderful, complicated, deep, I am has sent you. I am who I am. The transcendent, self-existent God has sent you. And I am will stretch out his hand against Pharaoh on behalf of his people. So we are picking up in the middle of a conversation, even though it's a chapter break. So sometimes it's okay to ignore the chapter breaks in the scripture. And just we're following along. So there's been two objections, and today we're just going to pick up with the third objection. Reading in Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. I told you all to turn there, and I didn't. Verses 1 through 17. So please follow along with me. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. May God bless the reading of his word, and let's bow in prayer. Father, I pray that we would be enlightened by your spirit. I pray that as we read this old text, that we would see your character there. I pray that you will help us to make the connection between this conversation between Moses and God and you, Father, 
and then what it means to us today. I pray that you will help us to assess our lives. I pray that you will empower us to change and give us the strength to obey. We thank you for the privilege that it is to study your word. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. So jumping right into it, the third objection that Moses gives is kind of reasonable. They won't believe me. I could have just made this up. I could have just said I saw a burning bush and and I am came to me. They're going to doubt me. How can I prove to them, them being the children of Israel, how can I prove to them that I've really spoken to you, Lord? And so we're going to look real quickly through these signs, but there is real meaning in these signs that God gives them. They're not just magic tricks that impress and it's like, oh, I'm, I'm impressed. I will believe you now. The first sign, he changes from the staff to the snake to the staff. God says to Moses, what's in your hand? Moses says, it's a staff. He says, throw it on the ground. And Moses responds as any sane, human, thinking person would do. He runs from it. There, there are, I, I, I should not tell you what really scares me, because then they will end up on my front porch. There are things, in the, there are animals in the world that I don't like. Snakes, snakes on, kind of on the list. I mean, everybody jumps when they see a snake. I remember mowing the grass, and the grass started moving, and I saw half of a snake headed off into the bark dust. But that, I did not enjoy that experience. Moses took his staff, threw it down, and became a snake. He did what um, most of us would do. You don't stand close to the snake to see if it's poisonous. You get back, and then you maybe look from a distance. And I'm sorry, I, I don't even have a lot of sympathy for non-poisonous snakes. They, they kind of freak me out. And so some of them have not lived long in our yard. But God, then God said, stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand, Moses, and grab it by the tail. I don't know at what age we learn. We learn this even though I've never held a snake. I know you hold it behind the head. I know that. I've never done that. But um, at some point, maybe kids, it's today. You learn. You never pick up a snake by the tail. You grab it behind the head. Because if you pick it up by the tail, it can still come back and bite you. So this was also a deliberate statement, a deliberate command that God was saying, pick it up, demonstrate faith, pick it up by the tail. Now, this sign of the, the staff of Moses becoming a snake, and then when he picked it up by the tail, it becoming a staff again. This was very meaningful. First of all, the fact that Moses ran from the snake shows that he was not a magician. In, in Egypt, there were many magicians, as we'll see later on in the passage. We'll see later on in this book. People could do tricks like this, whether by demonic power or some other gods uh, that they worshipped, some other um, power, they could turn things into snakes. But Moses throwing it down showed that he was not being a showman. He was not trying to trick the children of Israel. Also, the, the snakes were, the, the symbol of a snake, the motif of a snake was very important in Egypt. And most of us, what we know of Egypt, we've, we've grown up uh, hearing about King Tut. I think that was in the 70s or 80s when that exhibit started coming over. The big headdress that, that the uh, Egyptians wear, uh, we've, we've seen Prince of Egypt, we've watched the Ten Commandments every Easter season. The big headdress that the Egyptians would wear was, was uh, modeled after the hood of a cobra. Snakes were very important culturally, very important uh, religiously. Snakes were very special in Egypt. 
And no doubt, the children of Israel had been slaves there for 400 years. They also, even if they did not worship as the Egyptians did, they kind of knew how important snakes were. And so this change from staff to snake and then back again, with this sign, God is demonstrating to his people that he has power over the ceremonial power of the snake in that culture. He has power over creation and animals. God has power, please note, to transform. And, and we, we talked about this in our study this week, um, the, the elders as we met. He was able to transform from a staff to a snake and then back again. And I, I guess as, as we would be thinking about the, the task of transforming an inanimate object to an animal, it seems like it would be even more difficult to turn it back again. And so God really demonstrated his power over this aspect of Egyptian life. And it would, would have been something that would have got the children of Israel's attention. As we see later on in the chapter, it, it definitely did, as God said. But he said, if they don't believe that first sign of a staff becoming a snake in the back again, here's a second sign. And he told Moses to put his hand inside his cloak, and it became leprous. It, it, it showed the signs, the very visible signs of a skin disease. Now, skin diseases in this time were typically seen as incurable, perhaps even in our time too. Like, um, I know uh, I, I ended up not becoming a medical doctor, but my dad said, if you do, become a dermatologist. You won't kill anybody, and you're never going to cure anybody. You just always have business. But um, so skin diseases, skin diseases uh, in that time were very incurable and, and contagious, and so people were ostracized if they had leprosy or other skin diseases. We can see in the law, in uh, the book of Leviticus, that even in the Mosaic law, skin diseases were treated very seriously. A person who had this skin disease would be cut off from society and ostracized, would be isolated. We also see that leprosy was sometimes associated with sin. In Numbers, um, Moses' sister, later on in the story, um, God judged her by striking her with leprosy for a time. It was a sign of, of her sin against God. So this particular second sign would have been very convincing. It would have been horrifying initially for Moses to pull his hand out and have it show the obvious signs of, of a, a skin disease and then to have it restored. And with this sign, God is demonstrating his power over disease. It's almost as if Moses could say, is there any God that you've been worshiping that can restore and heal like this? So in the first sign, we have the power to transform. The second sign, the power to restore. But perhaps the strongest and most impressive sign is the last one. It's very difficult to overstate the importance of the Nile River to the Egyptians then and now. You know, Josh told me they, the, his family recently went to Amsi to the IMAX theater, and they saw um, the movie The Mystery of the Nile. Or is that just Josh leaving work? <laughs> Going to IMAX. Um, call me next time. We'll go. But so even now, uh, if, if you think of it, the Nile River flows from the heart of Africa north to the Mediterranean Sea. As it floods each year, it transforms the desert. There's something like uh, 20 to 30 feet of mud, fertile, wonderful to grow things in mud that just gets pushed upwards, and it kind of renews that area. That's why Egypt has always been so fertile 
and so powerful and, and able to, uh, to stand out from the rest of the countries in that area because the rest of it's desert. So the Nile has always been the life giver of Egypt. The Nile has been worshipped. The, there are great religious and cultural and agricultural and economic important factors tied to the Nile and the annual flooding of the Nile Delta. Farmlands, drinking water, wells, um, the ability to support livestock through the Nile. So taking the Nile River water and pouring it out on the ground and having it change literally to blood would not just have been a cool chemistry trick. It would have had great symbolic and meaningful uh, message for those seeing it. And again, he's speaking to the children of Israel, not to the Egyptians. The blessings of the Nile River and the importance of the Nile would have also been in the mindset of the children of Israel, even though they were slaves. To have this life giver turn to a symbol of vulnerable death would definitely convince God's people that Moses was God's prophet. And we know from the benefit of our perspective, that this is a foretaste, a chilling foretaste of the first plague that was to come. So these three signs, they would convince, they had meaning, they had symbolic meaning, they were physically incapable of reproducing without God's power. What was the purpose of these signs? It's important to remember that these were signs not to convince the Egyptians to give up. These were signs to convince the Israelites that Moses was called by God, to convince the Israelites that Moses was speaking for God and that Moses was leading them with the authority of God. These signs were to strengthen the weak faith of God's people. These were not to convince the skeptic into becoming a believer. So just a quick side note. Does God still work through signs and wonders today? Does God still work through signs and wonders today? And we, I want to touch on this briefly, and I really, not, not a cop-out, but I would recommend that community groups, as God leads, you might discuss this further this week, because this is a, an important uh, topic to discuss. Not the main point of this scripture, but we, we spoke about it this week in our study, and we believe that God can work through signs and wonders today whether that be healing or miracles. We do not hold to a strict, what's called a cessationist view, that these miracle wonder gifts have stopped, that God is no longer able to work through those. If God chooses to, God can work miracles. If God chooses to, God can, can give us signs. Um, but should we pursue the gift of healing? Should we pursue the gift of tongues? or of interpretation, or of miracles. What does Paul mean when he says in 1 Corinthians 12, you might jot that down, when Paul says, desire the greater gifts? So something for you guys, uh, and also uh, I and my, my uh, community group to, to discuss. I, I do want to point out, we should also remember the purpose of signs and wonders in the Bible, as I've just said, to strengthen faith, and correlate how God used signs and wonders to how God might use them today. This is the key part of signs and wonders in the Bible. The belief that comes after seeing a sign or wonder, this belief comes from God alone. It doesn't come from just seeing the sign. 
And we can look to this exact example with a, a little bit of a preview ahead. At the end of this chapter, Moses shows these signs as God has given them. He shows them to God's people. And they believe. And they worship. Moses shows the exact same signs to Pharaoh later in the book. And what is his response? The exact same signs? His response is that he is completely unconvinced. He is resolute in his unbelief. He hardens his heart. You see, the sign is not what produces faith. The wonder is not the thing that produces belief. God is the giver of the belief and that faith. But for us today, again I ask the question, does God work through signs and wonders today? And if we set aside for a moment that tidbit that I'm leaving to community group, miracles and healing and tongues for a moment, let me draw your attention to two signs, two powerful signs that God uses to strengthen the faith of his people And he can use that to strengthen our faith today. Number one, God has given us the sign of transformed lives of his people. Is there any greater evidence of a miracle than a sinful, dead person, filthy and unrighteousness, being transformed into a righteous, vibrant new creation? Some of you may know I'm speaking of what happens to us in salvation when God takes something that is dead and, as the KJV says, quickens that that person, gives them life. I pray that some of you in your hearts right now are, are remembering that before God drew you unto himself, you were dead. You were not pursuing him at all. You were pursuing pleasure. You were pursuing ambition. You were running from God. We were hostile to God. And he transformed that. That is a miracle. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. First sign. Second sign I would submit for your consideration that God has given us today is the church. The church, full of transformed believers, growing in community, making disciples, loving each other, and caring for one another. A church made up of people that come from very different backgrounds, different ideologies, you know, support different sports teams, perhaps the greatest divide among us. John 13, 34 and 35 A new commandment, Jesus is saying, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then verse 35, by this all people will know. By this all people will know. Is that not the description of a sign? You know, we have a sign out here, what's what's that road, Wagon Way? That when you turn to head back to Cornelius Pass, by this you shall know that you're turning onto the wagon way. By this all people will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love one for another. We should not overlook these signs. We should not say, yeah, God worked a miracle. He saved me. I was going to hell. I was going to be separated from him forever. But that's not really convincing. We sh- that wonder should strike us often, daily, constantly. 
we should be amazed at the grace that God has shown to us. And then when we come together, when we interact as a church body, when we fellowship together and eat together, when we meet for coffee, when we pray for each other, when we are struck by this person's in need, I'm going to call them and just tell them I'm praying for them. That's God working. That's God showing the world, these are my disciples because they love each other. Please don't overlook this. Please don't be blasé about it. Be encouraged. Have your faith strengthened by seeing these two signs. Now, throughout all this discussion of signs and wonders, I recognize that talking about snakes and leprosy and blood, and even what I just talked about, the, um, the church and believers, if you are here and you are not yet a believer or a follower of Christ, you are welcome, you are loved, and you are prayed for. We're not trying to just assimilate you prematurely. We're not just trying to say, you know, uh, act like a Christian. We're going to teach you the, the Christian words. We definitely want to show you truth from God's word and have God work in your heart. We're not here to sell you on what we believe. We're not here to convince you. We leave that up to God, and I'll talk about that more in a moment. But I want to give you one thing from this discussion of signs and wonders. Although I said that God uses signs and miracles to strengthen the faith of his people today, there is a note here for any here who may be um, trying to learn more about God, who may not yet be a believer. The hope for unbelievers is this. Although sin destroys and twists and corrupts and perverts and kills, only God can restore as new or better. Although sin and man can kill, sin can ruin, only God can restore. And when we talk about the staff becoming a snake, that's transformation. When we talk about having the power over disease and corruption, that God has. That's the same God that we worship today. When we talk about having the power over death and life, that's the God that we worship. Only God can make a new creation. Only God can restore the staff. Only God can restore the hand. And only God can take our broken, dirty, dead carcasses of our bodies of sinful unrighteousness and restore us to the purpose for which he has called us. So moving on into the passage, we've seen these very significant signs. Let's look at verse number 10. And Moses' slow speech problems. In verse number 10, Moses accepts these signs from God, but he has another objection that he wants God to consider. And we can see he's starting to depart from the formal request that he's made, where he said, who, who am I? And who are you? And what if they don't believe me? These are very legit, understandable. But this, this one, verse 10, what does he say? O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. I don't speak well. I'm not eloquent. I've always been this way, Lord. I've always been this way. And you know what, Lord? I haven't even improved the whole time you've been talking to me. I, I, I've... I find this amusing, uh, more like the gall of Moses to kind of flip it around. I'm like, God, you know, if you want me to speak, I would have expected to get a little better at this in my head you know, while we've been talking here by the burning bush. 
But Moses had some strong objections. And we could summarize his objections by saying, God, I don't have the necessary abilities to accomplish the calling that you've given to me. I don't have what it takes. Now, what are the explanations that we've, we've heard for, for Moses saying, I'm slow of speech, I'm slow of tongue? Um, number one, he really could have had a speech impediment. Um, he could have been out of practice in speaking Egyptian. But, but even then, as I was thinking about that common interpretation, I mean, he's speaking to the children of Israel first, and so he would need to be rusty on his Hebrew to be a bad speaker there. He could be, then he's going to speak to Pharaoh, and so there, maybe he's been 40 years as a shepherd, he forgot how to speak high court Egyptian. But I, I also think that there's a possibility that this is just a, an oratorical device, a self-deprecating device. And, and it's very common in Near, near Eastern culture, both then and today. And we can see this throughout Scripture. Um, it's, it's kind of a, a, a turn of phrase that conveys an exaggerated humility. When Abraham spoke to God, he says, I am but dust and ashes. He's not really saying he has a problem with dissimulation. He's saying, I am, you know, I'm just low. Jeremiah told God, I am but a child. David says, I am but a poor man and not well known. Mephibosheth, talking to David, says, I am but a dead dog. These are expressions. These are not, these are expressions of humility. Solomon, when he was called to be king, he told God, I am only a little child who does not know how to carry out my duties. Um, these, you know, whatever it was, whether it was really a speech impediment, whether it really was out of practice speaking the Egyptian language, or whether he was just trying to say, you've got the wrong man, it was the wrong objection to make. Because we can see in verse 11 how God responds. God responds in verse 11 by saying, the Lord said to him, I made that mouth. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Who has made man's mouth? God's saying, the mouth that you're talking about, that you're slow to speech and you can't talk real good, I made that mouth. I decide who is mute. I decide who is blind, who can see. I will be with that mouth of yours, Moses. I will be with that mouth. Remember, I created that mouth. I will tell you what to speak, Moses. And you kind of, I mean, if we take a step back, we can say, wow, Moses, remember, this is, I am speaking to you. Right next to you, there's a bush that's still burning, that's not being consumed. You can still do the boom, snake thing. You can do the leprous hand. Will this God not provide the, the right words to you when he has called you to do that? What's funny is that Moses, as he speaks to God, he calls him Lord, which is the name of God that denotes his sovereignty. Moses needs to realize that sovereign God has called him in chapter 3. Moses needs to remember that sovereign God is equipping him the conversation they just had with the signs. And sovereign God will accomplish his purposes in spite of Moses' gifts or in spite of Moses' weaknesses. Moses is not the central figure here. God is. My prayer is that this is starting to resonate a little bit. I'm going to pull it together in just a few minutes, but I hope this is starting to resonate a little bit with us. 
do you hear God saying to you, I made you that way. I made you talkative, or I made you reticent, you know, not, not, very, not very talkative. I made you outgoing. I made you an introvert. I made you musical. I made you musically challenged. It's not up to the created one to tell the creator how he should have created us. It's not up to the pot to tell the potter, you should have made me differently, and I don't want to be used that way. More to come on that. Look at verse 13. Moses objects because he is slow to speech, not a good speaker, not a good talker. And he moves on to verse 13. And he says, please send someone else. It's interesting how different translations present this. The ESV that I read from says in verse 13, please send someone else. The New King James says, please send by the ham, by the hand, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. Interesting. The New American says, please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. Please send the message by whomever you will. And, and my paraphrase is, Lord, that sounds really great, what you want to do. I know that you're going to choose the right person to do this. You see, if I, let me put it into maybe into our homes. Coming in the door with groceries, bags falling, you know, now we hold plastic bags, but bags falling down, it's like, hey, I need help. And if, if one of us, you know, spouses or children were to say, I know you're going to choose the right person to help you. Um, I know you're wise enough to choose the right person to help you. Um, the, God has been talking to Moses, said, I want you to do this. I'm going to give you the words to do it. I will be with you. It doesn't matter that you're not equipped. I made that mouth. And Moses is like, God, I know you're going to choose the right person, and you should send whoever you want to send. It's, it's, a, um, it's a very polite he says, please. It's a very polite, I would say it's even a little bit slightly insulting or disrespect, uh, disrespectful refusal that Moses is using for his final objection. You can see he's getting to the bottom of his list of why I shouldn't do this. His, it's a refusal, however. I mean, it's an undeniable refusal to do what God has called him to do, what God has commanded him to do. So here we see the end of God's patience with Moses. After five objections, well, four objections and then a final refusal, God's anger was kindled against Moses. And that's not a very nice phrase to see in Scripture. God's anger was kindled. But even then, he is merciful and understanding. He tells Moses, you've got a brother, Aaron, who can speak. You're going to speak to him, and you're going to put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth, Moses, and I will be with Aaron's mouth, and I will teach you both what to do. You shall be as God to him. Now, that's a little bit of a weird verse, but what that means, if we think of later on in the Old Testament, the prophets, how they spoke for God, they were not interpreting what God said and then telling the people. God told the prophets, tell this to my people, and the prophets spoke. And so, He's telling Moses, you're going to speak, and Aaron's going to use those words that you tell him to use, which I'm going to tell you. So that's what he means. 
that, that Aaron's not going to be an interpreter or a paraphraser, but he's going to use the exact words. Again, we are reminded the authority of God rests with Moses' words. Moses was at no point going to have to rely on his own eloquence or his own clever speech or his own skills or his own gifts or abilities or authority. God was going to be with him as he promised. God was going to equip him and God was going to accomplish his purposes through Moses. So what are the lessons that we can learn from this? What are the lessons that we should learn from these signs and wonders, these objections that Moses, kind of our proxy in the story, as he was speaking to God, what are the things that we, could, we should learn? First, consider what are we called to do? I don't know about you, but it's real easy for me to put myself in this as just like Moses. We're like Moses. Our objections, our excuses, our rationalizations, we, we do this for something as mundane as mowing the grass or cleaning the shed or uh, whatever, uh, balancing your checkbook. We, we, we find excuses and rationalizations for things like that. But I would ask you to consider that we also are called. We also are called to a great and grand and divine mission we are called to make disciples, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen in the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples. We are called to evangelize, to tell others of the gospel. All of us here who are believers are called to that. In Matthew four nineteen, Jesus told his disciples as he was calling them. He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I want to use you to draw men unto me, God is saying. In 1 Peter 3, we, we know this, this passage where uh, uh, Peter, the, through the inspired word of God, is saying, always be prepared, Christians, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. We're called to evangelize to tell others of the good news of the gospel. We are also called to become more like Christ, to be in His image, to become more like Him, to avoid sin, to pursue righteousness. Chad read this last week in uh, Romans eight twenty nine and 30. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed, to be molded to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So these, these threefold calls. We are called to make disciples. We are called to evangelize, to tell us of the gospel. We are called to become more like Christ. What are some of the objections that we put out there for God to consider? Maybe we don't have a face-to-face conversation with God or a, you know, speaking to the burning bush. But God hears us, and God knows our hearts. Some objections that I thought of, you know, one is taken right from this passage. Sometimes we might object to God and say, you've called me to do this, but I'm not gifted in that way. Another way to say that, I don't have the right abilities to do that, God. This isn't the right 
situation for me. This isn't the right phase of life for me to accomplish the calling that you put on my life, God. My husband works too much. I work too much. Lord, I need to focus on other things at this time. We may object and say, I have a two-year-old, or I have a 15-year-old, or I have so many kids that I've forgotten how old they are. They're just everywhere. We might object and say, I can't follow your command, God, because I'm not married yet. Or I can't do that, God, because I'm married and life is much more complicated. I'm still a kid. I'm just a teenager. I'm just a 10-year-old. Or I'm old and I forget things. These are objections. And I pray that maybe in your heart you're coming up with objections that you've given to God as well. God's response to us is like his response to Moses. He didn't tell Moses, I'm going to make you a really great speaker. He didn't tell Moses, I'm going to give you the confidence that you're just going to wow them. God's response to Moses and to us is like, yes, that is true what you say, but I want to use you. See, we are not called to take on something for God without God. He doesn't call us to do something for him and then leave us. He promised Moses he would be with him, and he promises us the same thing. We're just not going to be put out there by our Father who calls us. The key element to victory in the calling that we've been given is God. It's not us. Sometimes we factor, factor ourselves into the uh, equation of success too much. We're like, we try to figure out whether we can handle it before we commit to God. It's like God calls us to do something. God calls us to say something, to take an action. And we're like, hang on a second. You know, do I have the ability to do this? Do I have the time? Um, do I want to? Uh, and we, we figure this out. And then we give back to God and say, okay, I'll do it. I, I figured out that I can do what you've called me to do. God is not asking us to consider whether we, we can accomplish it. He's asking us to commit to him and he'll work through us. We should all remember that God has gifted us with our strengths and God has gifted us with our weaknesses or what we consider to be weaknesses, God may not consider to be a weakness. We, we read in the New Testament, God has chosen to use the weak things of the world to accomplish that which is mighty. Over and over again, he confounds the conventional wisdom. Do you remember when the, the children of Israel chose their first king in the book of Samuel? You know, they all chose Saul. He looked like a king. He acted like a king. And this punk kid who his father even forgot about him or didn't put him up, David, was who God wanted to be king. For us today, I want to speak to the call that we've all received, and, and specifically to a call that many of our, to which many of our objections may echo, Moses' objections, and that's the call that we have to evangelize. Now, I want to do this lovingly. I'm not going to guilt us into that. I'm not going to um, manipulate. But I want us to consider 
this call to evangelize. Now, to evangelize means to tell the good news, to tell people about the gospel. And I'm burdened that many of us in the church, elders included, that we can grow in our heart for unbelievers, that we can grow in our actions to answer the call of our Savior, and that we need to understand what, he's has, what He has given each one of us to do. I do believe that all believers are called to evangelize. We're all called to share the gospel. And although, as we've said from this pulpit, although it may be in different forms for different people, I don't believe that any of, any of us here have the zero form, that we're not called to do this. There's probably a hole in my logic there, but do you understand all of us have been called to evangelize? And we can all come up with different things, like I'm not good talking with people I don't know, I'm not good talking to people I do know. I just want us to consider prayerfully whether we are acting upon the call, the, the call that God has placed on our life or whether we're still working on our list of objections like Moses did. Perhaps it would be helpful for us to consider the unbelievers in our life. Consider the unbelievers in our families, in our workplaces, in the place where you stop and get coffee every day, the place where you eat as a family, your neighbors. Do you love the unbelievers in your life? And if so, how are you showing it? Sharing the gospel, the good news of the gospel, is a multifaceted way of showing love. And any loving person would want to share the good news of the gospel with those that they love. There's, there's a quick list of um, five possible reasons that we don't evangelize. I, I want to say them because, you know, sometimes we, we see the problem that we have when we hear other people have it. But um, uh, this came from Nine Marks Organization, uh, from their uh, e-journal this, this past month. But by God's grace, at Grace and Truth, we've already started working on some of these, these reasons, um, knocking down some of these reasons as a, as a group. But number one, one reason that we don't evangelize is that we, we can tend as a church, not, maybe not this church by God's grace, but something for us to be careful about, we can tend to isolate Christians from unbelievers. We can do this in well-meaning ways. We can do this by having too many programs at the church where we're so busy being a, a church and doing church things that we don't know anybody outside of the church. We can do this by fostering hostility towards the world, by saying the problem with the world is those unbelievers. The problem with the world is that sin that's outside there. There's no sin in here. And that's not true. We know that not to be true. The second reason that we may not evangelize, we believe that evangelism is extraordinary. That's to be done by special heroes, special people, by elders or people that have been saved a long time. But we can look in Scripture and see that's not true. We can look and see people that were transformed and they immediately want to tell others. No doubt you know of people, perhaps even here, who became a, a believer and they wanted to tell others. They didn't know better. They didn't know you're supposed to come up with excuses why you don't do it. They're like, I got to tell somebody about this good thing that happened. We tell each other about free chalupas 
about free smoothies or 7-Eleven. Uh, free uh, Slurpees, Ices? Slurpees, okay. <laughs> you guys have bad nutritional habits. Um, we believe that evangelism is extraordinary and to be done by others. Or third, we look for immediate results. And when that doesn't happen, we're like, well, it's not working for me. But we, we teach the clear doctrine that God is the one that reaps a harvest, that we are just to plant the seed. We are to love people. We are to proclaim the gospel to them. But we're not out to close the deal. We're not the timeshare salesman that says, this is only good for today, and if you don't sign now, you know. we share the gospel. We pray fervently. We share the gospel again. And maybe the, the people move out of our lives, and there's another faithful believer who's going to come along and share more of the gospel, and God's drawing that person unto himself. And we may never know if the results happen, but it's not up to us. You see, it's not up to us. It's kind of the, I should have named this, the, uh, the, this titled this message, It's Not Up to Us. Number four objection. We might not be clear ourselves on what the message of the gospel is. We might not be clear ourselves on what the message of the gospel is. And here, I would entreat you lovingly that it's okay to come to a fellow believer and say, can, can I talk about this gospel thing? You know, we, we mentioned the gospel in our songs. We're gospel-centered. Um, there are book titles with gospel, but I'm kind of fuzzy on it. I know that I'm just, I'm trusting in, in Jesus' work on the cross to reconcile me to God, but I couldn't explain it. Th- that's a conversation we should have. That's not a dumb question. That's not a fearful, oh no, people are going to think that I, I'm, I'm not a believer because I don't know the gospel. That's a, that's a wonderful coffee conversation. Like, let's just review, because you know what? As believers, for a year, five years, ten years, reviewing the gospel is not a trite exercise. It is a renewing, encouraging, faith-building, wonderful thing to do. And fifthly, and this, this uh, impacted me greatly, one reason we may not evangelize is that we don't talk enough about the cost of following Jesus. We don't talk enough about the cost of following Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul talks about the gospel message being a stumbling block, the gospel being foolishness to those who hear it, and that those who would speak the gospel would be low and despised. If you consider the book of Acts, the early church, If you go through that book, flip through that book and see examples of the people in that early church sharing the gospel, that was typically followed by bad things happening to them. It was not share the gospel and then all the gospel and persecution. Yet they were called to share the gospel. See, God is not all about us and our sense of well-being and our sense of earthly peace but he does call us to accomplish his purpose. And perhaps we don't talk enough about, are we willing to lose our reputations for the sake of the gospel? That's something that we can grow in. But remember, we're not doing this by ourselves. I, just, just a few quick things that I call low-hanging fruit, you know, like apples on a tree that you can just reach and grab. Low-hanging fruit of evangelism. One example we saw recently uh, where uh, a member of the church 
just put a message on the city and says, my coworker is moving, they need help. Can we get a group together from the church to help them move? And, and to do so openly and say, you know, we're helping you because we worship God with Beth and we're, we just want to help you. You're a friend of Beth's, we want to help you. And I know there were a, attempts made to, to share the gospel during that, that visit. They know who we are. This is a, a low-hanging fruit. This is a, a deliberate gospel-proclaiming opportunity. Perhaps there can be other group projects, community or otherwise, where we clearly identify and, and participate and say our motivation for doing this is because we love God and we want to express his love to other people. Perhaps you could have a neighbor over or talk to a neighbor on the sidewalk and have it be more than just about the weather or about you know, your football team, but, but actually speak about what God's doing in your life. I, I think sometimes we can overanalyze this and say, well, I, I don't really have a 10-minute, a 15-minute message with a, a, a funny joke to start with, three points, and then a, a call to action. Sometimes it is saying, you know, you've probably noticed some changes in my life over the, the years that you've known me. Haven't you ever wondered why? I want to tell you what God did in my life. And just, and then follow up with, you know, maybe you'll have another opportunity. Maybe people are, have been afraid to ask because they don't want to say, dude, you've really changed. And, and just sharing our story of how God has transformed us can open the door to proclaiming the gospel. We are called to proclaim it, not just to live it and hope that the meta message gets through. We're called to live lives consistent with the message that we are preaching. But we, and we are to speak truth and love. Preaching the gospel is not hate-filled, you're going to hell pickets and bullhorns, but it is love-filled statements of saying, without Christ, dear friend, without Christ, you have no hope. Without Christ, I have no hope. Christ has paid the penalty for your sin if you will but believe in him. Repent of your sin and trust his work on the cross solely for your salvation. And explain what that work is. I don't want to take the time here, but I would love to take the time while we eat or over coffee. And you can do the same too. Don't, don't use you know, the, the, the familiar words that we might use here. Just, just put it into plain English that Jesus took the penalty, the punishment for our sin. It does look different. Evangelism does look different for different believers, but the act of evangelism and the call to evangelize exists for all believers. So I want to ask you, are you serving God in this way, in the situation where he has placed you? Am I serving God in the situation where he has placed me? Or are we still lining up objections? We would get together, we would make time to get together with an uh, unbelieving mom for a play date. We would get together to share recipes that have extra high fructose corn syrup because they taste good. We would get together with a friend at work to watch football, would we not, apropos of this season? I want to remind us again, God has gifted us with the gifts and with the weaknesses for a purpose. Look back to the passage one more time at the very end, verse 16 and 17, where God's telling Moses, I'm going to speak, uh, Aaron's going to speak for you to the people, 
and Aaron will be your mouth. Verse 17 is a really curious postscript to this conversation. Verse, take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. It's almost like God is saying, we've had this conversation. Do you understand now? And Moses gets it. And then God says, don't forget your staff, buddy. Don't forget your staff. This have. This is what you are, Moses. I've and, and what I've given you. Your staff is your tool. It's your everyday. It is almost like it is your ability, Moses. And speaking to us, what God has given us, our personalities, our our love for whatever, our passions, God has given those to us. And he said, God is telling Moses and God's telling us, this is what I want you to use. Don't worry about what you don't have. I'll take care of the rest, but use what you have been given. And in that, be faithful. So I'd say to us, don't forget your staff. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the the words that I've spoken, that that you would use them, that you would guide them and reshape them if, if, uh, if they were unclear or harsh. You know, Father, that this message impacts me, not in a theoretical way, but for real. that I want you to work in my life, and this is a fearful prayer, that I want you to work in my life to help love the unbelievers in my life more, that I want you to help me to speak. I am thankful, Father, for how you have worked to, to save me. I'm thankful for the work of transformation, of renewal, of restoring in my life. And what I see in my beloved friends around me, that you've done that in their lives too. And I just pray that we would see that and that we would love those around us by being willing to speak. Thank you so much, Father, for being kind and loving us even when we come up with objections that just must must make you shake your head, that make your anger be kindled against us. But I thank you, Father, that you are patient and loving and you're still shaping us. And you're taking whatever staff we have And you want to use that. And that you're going to be with us and you're going to tell us what to say and tell us what to do. That you, the supreme sovereign creator of the world, would deign to use us in that way, should boggle our minds. We are seeking individually and as a church to be used by you in ways that we cannot comprehend. And we want you to have all the glory for it because we'll know It wasn't anything we did. It wasn't anything we said. But that you worked, and we glorify you for that. It is in your Son's name that we pray that you would change us. Amen.